Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, January 29th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. What did everyday Romans in Pompeii eat? An archaeologist has tried to reconstruct their meals. Merriam-Webster has added 520 new words to the dictionary. How do they decide which words get added? And a sci-fi dictionary to explore this weekend. Plus, Spotify wants to try to guess your music taste based on the tone of your voice. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Back in December, archaeologists at the Archaeological Park of Pompeii announced that they had further excavated the Thermopylium of Reggio Quinto, Reggio V. So Reggio V is in the northeastern section of Pompeii, and the Thermopylium basically translates to a snack bar. And this specific one was partially excavated in the spring of 2019, and just a couple of months ago, it was announced that the snack bar had been fully excavated, revealing food residue, animal bones, ample art adorning the bar, ceramic storage containers, or dolia, and the remains of some victims who were at the snack bar when Mount Vesuvius erupted. Quoting Atlas Obscura, The space's large masonry counter was adorned with frescoes depicting scenes of daily life inside the venue, such as flagons and cooking implements hung above the bar and the image of a porter making a delivery, as well as a portrait of a Greek sea nymph riding a seahorse and images of mallards, a chicken, and a dog. Leaning against the bar were several ceramic wine jars known as amphorae, which originally housed locally produced and imported Greek wines. And lastly, some of the dolia contained the bones of several types of animals, and one dolium contained remains belonging to one of the men. In the case of the latter, it looks like they were placed there by 18th century looters." End quote. Jason highlighted this find on the Kotke blog earlier this year, marveling, as many people did, about the kind of ordinariness of a snack bar, you know, especially one where they identified a bit of graffiti that has withstood the test of time. Jason wrote at the time, quote, You never really think about the to-go food stall as an architectural archetype, much less one that's 2,000 years old, but all the elements are right there. It doesn't look so much different from a hot food bar at a New York City bodega or Whole Foods. Archaeologists also found graffiti scrawled on the back of the snack bar, just like that on the walls and tables of a place like John's Pizzeria. You could completely imagine yourself standing there two millennia ago, looking at the pictures and containers of what's on offer, ordering some lunch, and chuckling at the graffiti with a pal. End quote. Archaeologist Pharrell Monaco had similar thoughts. His research centers on food and food preparation in the Roman Mediterranean, and he sees the Thermopylium, or snack bar, as a fantastic insight into the realities of everyday Romans, as compared to the high society we often see depicted and often exaggerated in media. One reason it's such a great example of what the working class ate is because, according to Dr. Anna Maria Soto, director and archaeology officer of the Antiquarium of Boscarelli, quote, "...only 40% of the urban dwellings of the working poor and 66% of the middle-class homes had fixed hearths for cooking." End quote. So many of them ate out for their meals, and as far as the extent of excavations have been able to show thus far, there were at least 80 food and beverage outlets in Pompeii. So this snack bar was not unique at all. It was a common facet of everyday life for most Romans living in Pompeii and may be able to reveal a lot about what ordinary Romans were eating. 
As more information has come out about the snack bar, Monaco has been working to recreate what might have been on the menu. And he's done this by looking at the frescoes painted on the snack bar, as well as the contents of the storage containers, which line up with each other. For example, one of the containers held duck bones, and the counter was painted with mallards. Though Monaco notes that he doesn't believe the dolia containers held raw meats to be used in foods like stews, which he says were rare in ancient Roman cooking. Rather, because these types of containers were usually for dry and liquid storage, not cooking, he believes they may have been used as receptacles for food waste, or perhaps were saved to be used in making large batches of broth. In any case, in addition to the duck, the dolia also contained the remains of goat, swine, fish, and land snails. And working with a line of reasoning that would classify the snack bar as a bit more of a pub or pupina, Monaco proposes the following as possible fare on offer there at the time. For lunch, a master stock braised duck with mense. Mense is a kind of flatbread that was likely used as both a plate and a utensil. He got to this meal by referencing ancient cookbooks and other primary documents from his previous research, and impressively, Monaco actually cooked the meal with as close to period methods as he could hack together. And you can make the whole meal yourself with the assistance of very detailed instructions and an ingredient list over on Atlas Obscura. And Monaco closes the recipe guide by painting this picture, reminiscent of Jason's reflection on the snack bar, quote, now take your bowl of braised duck and your bread and imagine you're in a Pompeian popina. Find a stool where there's enough light to see the food in front of you. You may have to slide up next to a stranger, so make sure your coin purse is secure. Best make this your last cup of wine. The ground always trembles beneath your feet when you've had too much, and it's doing so right now. Not to worry, the broth and bread will sober you up just enough to stagger out the front door past that dog that won't stop barking at something off in the distance. Scratch his head to distract him, then say goodbye. Time to go while there's still daylight. Is it daylight? The air outside has a strange yellow hue to it and an acrid smell, and the earth feels as if it's trembling periodically as you steady yourself on the edge of a fountain. It's probably just the wine, but you'd better get home quickly. A dark cloud is forming above Vesuvio, and it looks as if a storm is on its way. End quote. Merriam-Webster just announced that they have added 520 new words to the dictionary, reflecting our quickly changing times. Whenever announcements like this come out, I'm always curious how these words get approved. You know, why these words? Why some that seem like they were relevant four years ago, and why some that maybe many have never even heard of? Well, on their website, Merriam-Webster explains a bit about their process of approving new words for entry into the dictionary, and it's basically just about how much the word gets used. Their editors are all tasked with spending a couple of hours a day reading a cross-section of publications and marking any, quote, new words, new usages of existing words, variant spellings, and inflected forms, end quote. And any marked passages are given a citation, stored both on a computer and on a physical note card. I found this kind of cool. Merriam-Webster's citation files date back to the 1880s and contain 15.7 million examples of words used in context. But having a citation file doesn't mean a word automatically gets added to the dictionary. It just gets added into a review process conducted by editors and done section by section in very small chunks of the alphabet. 
They're cross-checked with parts of the existing dictionary that are up for re-edits, so the editors are looking for existing entries to amend or remove and new entries to add. These decisions get made on the basis of citational evidence. The more citations, the better, but to a point. They can't all come from just one place or field, for example. Quoting again, To be included in a Merriam-Webster dictionary, a word must be used in a substantial number of citations that come from a wide range of publications over a considerable period of time. Specifically, the word must have enough citations to allow accurate judgments about its establishment, currency, and meaning. End quote. And they note that this process usually takes several years, but that sometimes, like the case of the AIDS epidemic or our current pandemic, certain words enter into the public vocabulary very quickly, and they need to add them to the dictionary. That's why Merriam-Webster added extra coronavirus-related terms to their regularly scheduled update last spring. And now, with another update, comes a few more coronavirus-related words, as well as several others reflecting the current moment. Here's a few standouts. Long hauler a person who experiences one or more long-term effects following initial improvement or recovery from a serious illness, such as COVID-19. They've added definitions to the words pod and bubble. They've also added an additional informal definition of the at symbol, which apparently already existed as a word in the dictionary. Quote, to respond to, challenge, or disparage the claim or opinion of someone, usually used in the phrase, don't at me. End quote. Merriam-Webster has also added reaction gif, or gif, alongside digital blackface, which I think is a kind of cool addition. They define it as, quote, the use by white people of digital depictions of black or brown people or skin tones especially for the purpose of self-representation or self-expression, end quote. Or as I have understood it in the past, white people using images of black people as reaction gifs. There's also hard pass, flex, and cancel culture, which gets us into a number of words and terms that I'm kind of surprised weren't already in the dictionary if such words are being included. See also crowdfund. I'm pretty shocked that wasn't in there already. I mean, I know they explained that things can take time, but still, that one seems pretty old. Also in that category, gig worker and co-working. And they've also added prison industrial complex and decarceration. And for the internet crowd, we've got hygge, the Danish word for coziness and comfort, sapiosexual, someone attracted to intelligent people, and ASMR, which has become popularized as a type of video and audio content, but is defined by Merriam-Webster as autonomous sensory meridian response, a pleasant tingling sensation that originates on the back of the scalp and often spreads to the neck and upper spine that occurs in some people in response to a stimulus, such as a particular kind of sound or movement, and tends to have a calming effect, end quote. There's a number of others that you can check out at the link in the show notes. And one last thing for any word nerds out there. Jason shared a quick link on cocky.org this morning to the Historical Dictionary of Science Fiction, which is a quotation-based dictionary of the language of science fiction. It's a historical dictionary, which means it focuses on the historical usage of words in its definitions. Kind of like the Oxford English Dictionary, with which the Science Fiction Dictionary used to be affiliated. It's a pretty fascinating work in progress that you can help improve and contribute to as a moderator if you would like to, and it goes a bit beyond sci-fi into fantasy and horror as well. It's cool to poke around and check out. For example, did you know that the term hoverboard predated Back to the Future Part 2? 
It was used in at least two other pieces of media before that, in 1964 in a story by Edward Jespy called C-Rack that was published in the magazine of science fiction and fantasy, and also in the 1967 book Hole in Zero by M.K. Joseph. Did Joseph take the word from Jespy? Did Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis read one of those stories, or did they all just come up with it independently? Those are the kinds of questions that historical dictionaries always leave me with. But still, it's a fun jumping-off point. Spotify is taking personalized recommendations to a whole new level. After filing it a few years ago, Spotify has been granted a patent for technology that would enable them to analyze someone's speech and background noise in order to suggest songs for them. Quoting Pitchfork, The patent outlines potential uses of technology that involves the extraction of intonation, stress, rhythm, and the likes of units of speech from the user's voice. The tech could also use speech recognition to identify metadata points such as emotional state, gender, age, accent, and even environment, i.e. whether someone is alone or with other people, based on audio recording, end quote. And from the BBC, quote, And it should be understood that the above example metadata categories of emotions, gender, age, and accent are merely examples, and numerous other characterizations and classifications can be used, it said in the filing. The results would be combined with other information, including users' previously played songs and their friends' taste in music, to improve recommendations, end quote. A Spotify spokesperson clarified to Pitchfork that Spotify has filed hundreds of patents over the years and that they don't always become products, saying that they had no news to share at this time. So this isn't necessarily a feature that will be coming anytime soon, if ever, but it's something that Spotify has at least considered. And it builds off of a study that they published in the Journal of Social Psychological and Personality Science last summer that made connections between music taste and the big five personality traits. And Spotify found a few things in that study, like more people who self-assess as less agreeable listen to more death metal, and people who self-assess as more agreeable listen to more jazz or country. But they noted that that study is just the tip of the iceberg, and they'd like to conduct more research. Now, I don't know that a feature coming from this patent would be a low-key way of doing research per se, because they were clear in that study, quote, We recognize that one's digital history is extraordinarily personal and sensitive. We disavow any future research or applications that violate ethical standards of data usage and are not transparent about privacy to its users. End quote. Which is nice to hear, I suppose, but, you know, still, if this feature were ever to exist, there's no doubt it would be a little creepy, and at least perceived as a bit ethically dubious. That said, I would still be super curious what kind of music gets suggested to me solely based on the sound of my voice. In all likelihood, probably the same vaguely twee-infused alt-rock I listen to anyways. Hopefully not something more embarrassing than that anyways. Well, that is it for today. As always, this show was brought to you by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird. And hey, if you don't regularly check out the other offerings from Ride Home or Kotki, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, Brian McCullough, the host of the tech meme Ride Home, covered the whole GameStop thing yesterday. And today's episode of the tech meme Ride Home uh, will include his weekend long read suggestions. So plenty of stuff to keep you intrigued through 
throughout the weekend. And over on Kotki.org, Jason has shared a number of kind of calming and thought-provoking videos this week, in addition to his usual slew of quick links that curate some of the best takes on current events and more. So check it all out if you haven't already. But that is it from me. I hope you all have a great weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday.